Welcome to the Mahogany Tower. Thanks for joining in today. Uh, it's still February, right? So uh, earlier this month, we had Valentine's Day and we're celebrating black people this entire month. And uh, I am, you know, doing that because that's something that I try and do during Black History Month. Uh, but in any case, we're doing this series right now, right? So uh, earlier this month, I did part one of Colorblind Christian Courtship. Um, and I mean, honestly, the entire purpose and motivation of this series is talking about this notion of like colorblind racism and Christian dating and how um, there's this notion or idea that uh, interracial relationships are indicative of like racial progress. And it's like this unequivocal and undisputable kind of uh, evidence for it. Um, but there's lots of reason to think, and right, there are people who write entire papers and books about this, like the notion or idea of interracial dating, it's not random and it's not equally accessible to everyone based on their gender, based on their race, based on their class, and certainly lots of other characteristics as well. And so we have all of these kind of uh, diversity platitudes that we use. And yet, uh, for those of us that have uh, read a little bit more, thought a little bit more, or even just kind of have these lived experiences, uh, it can be strange to kind of see interracial dating talked about in this way kind of again and again within the context of Christian ministry. And again, I don't have any qualms or issues with uh, people who are in interracial relationships. I'll talk a little bit about uh, some of my own perspectives and ideas with that here. Uh, but again, we're just going to pick up where we left off. Again, we're still going to keep it spicy. The feedback from part one was uh, mostly pretty positive. Uh, part two is going to get really deep and really personal, really fast. So hopefully people continue to think that, you know, it's, uh, it's good, but I'll be honest with you. I mean, it'll be a little bit deeper today, uh, but I appreciate you coming through. Um, I'm not ignorant to the fact that uh, this is a topic that's an ambitious undertaking, right? Um, you can literally write books on interracial dating and lots of people have written books on interracial dating. Um, people across disciplines, sociologists, economists, you know, historians, like, People who have thought really deeply about the topic. I mean, I think the slant of looking at this phenomenon in the church is a bit more unique, right? And I think it perhaps distinguishes it from some of the other conversations that are happening. Um, you know, as I mentioned before, the church is considered by many to be this utopian environment that's insulated from many of the vices of the world. Um, but on the other hand, we don't have to go back very far in American or global history to see many such instances where the church has noticeably missed the mark on race relations, right? So consequentially, in light of this paradox, uh, people may have really different ideas concerning the social processes that may be at work as courting and dating uh, relationships take place in the church, right? I always, always try my best to be thoughtful, right? Now, my personal opinion is that even though we have the Holy Spirit and we're trying to live like Jesus, on our very, very best day, Christians are still just human, right? And as a behavioral scientist 
and an emerging expert on human behavior, I suspect our behavior at church isn't as insulated from the world's vices as we'd like to think. In fact, I'll even share a few experiences here today where interactions in the church can actually look worse than those in the world. Again, and that's just my personal opinions, right? Now, colorblindness is a diversity ideology. It's already pretty complex on its own. In essence, it makes the following point. Because of all the other things people tend to have in common, racial or ethnic differences between people are so trivial, they're not even worth thinking or talking about. Now, in truth, this can be done with benign intentions, right? So that means innocent or harmless intentions. This can also be done with malicious intentions, right? You're trying to kind of exploit or take advantage of people or mistreat them. But either way, let's just assume it's the former because we're talking about uh, dating other people of the faith. So these are people you go to church with. Uh, these are people that are Christians. These are people who want to be helpful and supportive and they're trying to love us in a righteous way. Let's just assume all of this is done with benign intentions, right? Here's a question for you to ponder. If something is really important to someone, how do you think they feel when you tell them it's not important? Let's even step outside of the context of, of race. or We can use any other example, right? Let's step outside of this context just for a second. You have a friend, and let's say that they're an artist, right? And from their conversations with you, you can gather they enjoy celebrating art and connecting with other artists. And they see that as an important aspect of who they are, right? To them, it's part of their identity. It's one of the many things God has included um, as he made this person who they are. It's obviously not the most important thing, right? But it's one of many things about themselves that they love and celebrate. And you walk up to that person and you tell them to their face, personally, I don't think being an artist is important in any way. Or maybe you say something along the lines of, whether you're an artist or not, we're all basically the same and we all basically have the same experiences. Or maybe you say, instead of talking about art, let's just focus on all the things that we have in common, right? Now, I like this example because I think most of us would agree these are all kind of uh, cringeworthy moments, right? It's like something off of television, like a TV show. I think most of us understand, like, dude, forget whether or not art is important to you. You know it's important to your friend. For them, they see that as a huge part of who they are. And in a relationship, romantic or otherwise, you try and show you value the person by acknowledging the things that they value. I mean, you could keep having conversations like this with your friend, but after a while, they'll probably start to feel like you're rejecting a pretty big aspect of who they are as a person. 
Aside from being a bit painful, that can also feel really disrespectful, right? Now, I imagine they would feel something like, this is a really big aspect of who I am, and not only are you resistant to accepting that, but you're also actively trying to convince me that it's not a big aspect of who I am. Yeah, that's definitely cringeworthy, right? Now, as you probably gathered, right, you're smart. Um, I'm using this as a metaphor for why colorblindness doesn't effectively promote inclusivity in congregations, or in general, really, even in kind of society at large. But let's talk about church, because that's what we're talking about today. Now, if you're under the impression that you'll make people feel welcome by telling them that benign things that they love about themselves are completely unimportant to you, and you don't think they're worth acknowledging, I think you're a bit naive and misguided as to how relationships work, romantic or other. Like, if you think you can tell people that things that they love about themselves, they appreciate about themselves, things that are really important to them, aren't important to you and you don't care about them, and that's not going to affect the relationship in any way, I think you're being a little bit naive concerning how relationships work. Yet and still, I see people talk about being colorblind, even in the context of dating, and talking about it as if, uh, it'll help promote better loving people of different racial and ethnic and cultural backgrounds. At best, it's a very, very risky strategy to communicate that you want them to feel safe with you in spite of cultural differences. Now, at worst, you'll tell someone that you take a colorblind approach to dating and they'll interpret that as I won't be able to deeply share about my identity with this person or their friends because there are many aspects of who I am that they don't believe to be important. Like I said, it's a risky strategy, especially if you're actually trying to communicate that you're open-minded and you're not racist. I mean, for a lot of people, you actually end up doing the opposite, right? Now, speaking of racism, I'll share something here that I've said elsewhere. I don't think I've shared it explicitly on the podcast or the blog, but again, full transparency, you know, we're talking about real things today. Um, I'll admit it's something I should probably try and do a little bit better about, but this is where I am today. I don't really talk about racism with white people that I don't have close relationships with. I don't. And going to church with someone doesn't necessarily constitute a close relationship. True story. If you know me, you know I don't really like inconveniencing people. And my personal experience, again, I want to be clear, this is me sharing anecdotes. My personal experience is that white people don't really want to talk about racism. It's an inconvenience to you. And honestly, I don't like to be an inconvenience. And you would think, right, you know, it might be different sometimes with the white people that you go to church with, but honestly, that's not always true. So yeah, I generally don't talk about racism with white people that I'm not close with. The exception is if they bring it up. Because if you bring it up, it means you're showing some interest in talking about it, right? 
But if you don't bring it up, I don't want to assume you're interested in talking about racism. Because you may not even believe that racism exists. And if I don't have a close relationship with you, I really don't know. Now, to be sure, the pattern I described isn't specific to the topic of race relations. This takes place with many different manifestations of inequality that exist in society. So for instance, right, gay people are a lot more likely to talk about homophobia when they're with gay friends, probably because they feel safer to do so, right? Homophobia or heteronormative ideals are way easier to see when you're negatively affected by them, right? You don't really have concerns about people telling you you're crazy or you're imagining things or being angry with you just for sharing your lived experiences with homophobia. Talking about it with other gay people without a doubt probably makes gay people feel much safer, right? Women are a lot more likely to talk about sexism with other women, probably because they feel safer to do so. Sexism is way easier to see when you're negatively affected by it, right? You don't really have concerns about you know, people telling you you're crazy or you're imagining things or being angry with you for sharing your lived experiences with sexism. Talking about it with other women, without a doubt, probably makes women feel much safer. So this is true too for race relations. It's a topic that comes up quite often when I'm with my non-white friends. But when I'm with white people, I don't know I mean, I'm not going to bring it up. You out of your mind? <laughs> I mean, I'll make a remark if they bring it up. But, I mean, I'm not going to bring it up. Because I don't want to inconvenience you by talking about a topic that you don't even believe exists. Or you don't care about. Right? I mean, in fact, if I'm being honest with you, there are lots of situations where I felt more comfortable talking about racism with white people that I don't go to church with. Because a lot of the white people that I do go to church with believe that racism doesn't exist and doesn't affect Christian ministry. And again, that's just my personal lived experience, right? So yeah, it's kind of like talking about aliens with people who don't believe in UFOs. Like, why would I put myself in a situation where I'm talking about racism with people who may not even believe that racism exists? Like... I like, I need something that makes me feel safe to talk about it. And so I'm not going to bring it up if you don't bring it up, right? In order for people to feel like they can talk about unique or distinctive experiences they've had, or even highly personal stories that resulted in them feeling sad or angry or hurt or scared, etc., they have to feel psychological safety, right? So they have to feel like it's a safe relationship. They have to feel safe with you, right? And I think a lot of times Christians talk about being colorblind in the context of dating to try and create that safe space, right? In practice, though, 
that's usually not how things are interpreted. Most racial minorities hear that in the context of dating and think, oh, I can't share my unique or distinctive racial or ethnic experiences with this person because they believe that most people in America all have the same experiences or all have similar experiences. Look, I'm not gonna beat a dead horse. Suffice to say that promoting colorblindness as a perspective on uh, interracial dating is unflattering and doesn't necessarily make people feel safe, particularly if they strongly identify with their racial or their ethnic background. You know, it's interesting though, because I can't help but feel that, particularly for black people, celebrating your history and culture is perceived as a disinterest in interracial dating. Let me be unequivocally clear, um, and I'm on the record, right? So this is, I mean, it's available for everybody. I desire to be with the woman that God desires for me to be with. Period. God knows me better than anybody. So I feel comfortable in trusting him with that because God's not going to set me up with a woman that I'll have a miserable life with. Seriously, I'm completely open to God's plan. Black, white, Asian, Hispanic, American, Nigerian, whatever. After lots and lots of different dates, I don't know if I want to call them dates, if they're dates, or they're not dates, that's a whole different conversation. But after lots of different dates, uh, I can earnestly say who you are on the inside is way more important than your race or your ethnicity. And I've met amazing women of all different backgrounds and races and ethnicities, shape, sizes, all that other kind of stuff, right? In spite of that, though, I can't help but feel that for lots of people, they would otherwise kind of see me as this, uh, you know, man who identifies with his black heritage and culture and background. And just kind of assume that that means certain things about my willingness or open to uh, be in an interracial relationship. So let's talk about that because I, I think that's actually really important. I think for much of American history to be uh, pro-black was viewed as synonymous with being anti-white. A lot of that has to do with the fact that historically and even presently, lots of white Americans view racism as a zero-sum game. So um, that basically means white people believe that um, if black people win, white people lose. Like if black people gain something, it means it's being taken from white people. So that represents a zero-sum game. That represents something called zero-sum thinking. And I want to be clear this isn't just thought or opinion, and I'm not just pulling this out of my armpit. There's lots of research in psychology and sociology on intergroup relations and intergroup conflict that provides strong evidence for this pattern of thinking among white Americans. Like they view racism as a racism, particularly with white black race relations, as a zero sum game. So if something is given to black people, it's being taken from white people. Um, now, admittedly, there were aspects of American uh, history where race relations was indeed a zero-sum game. I'll give you some examples. Black people could only be freed as slaves if white people gave up their slaves. There is no middle ground with that. That is a zero-sum scenario. 
if I get my freedom, you're losing your slaves, period, right? Another example, black people gaining voting power meant that white people were losing voting power, right? So when we were kind of doing the civil rights movement and trying to appeal and protest for our right to vote, when we gained something, like white people lost a little bit of their power and influence. Obviously, they still have the right to vote, but their level of influence went down because black people's level of influence went up, right? So to be fair, there are certain, and there were certain aspects of American history and race relations uh, that were kind of, had zero-sum aspects. Admittedly, though, much of that was specific to an era in history where black people didn't even have the basic rights entitled to American citizens. There are many aspects of modern day race relations that do not represent a zero sum game. Although research suggests that white Americans tend to view white black race relations today in America in a zero sum thinking kind of framework. So I think one great example is natural hair discrimination that black women experience. Like white people don't lose anything by not discriminating against black women with natural hair or Afro or dreads or whatever. That's just something that that's being done and deciding not to do that anymore isn't taking anything away from white people. But again, I think there's this notion or idea anytime we give something to black people, we're taking something away from white people. It's, it's a really destructive pattern of thinking to be quite honest. So anyway, I think with being pro-black in the U.S. today, lots of white Americans might assume that I only want to date black women. And they may also assume I'm especially opposed to dating a white woman. And I want to be clear, again, I'm on the record, right? Principally, neither of those things are true. Neither of those things are true. What I will say, and again, I'm on the record, right? <laughs> That's so funny to say. What I will I mean, we're talking about really sensitive subject matter, so I get it, right? Like, I, I, I try and be really mindful of what I say and how I say it because I want to be responsible. Um, so a lot of thought goes into, again, how to illustrate these ideas. What I will so say, though, um, is this. I'm very open about who I date, but I do... I do want to date someone who is racially conscious, right? By racially conscious, I don't think that means uh, we have to share all of the same views and political leanings and those kind of things. Like, that's not what I mean when I say racially conscious. Um, in fact, quite the contrary. I actually want and expect for my girlfriend, my, my fiance, my wife to have her own opinion about things, right? Because marriage is a partnership, and there are many occasions where diversity of perspective is going to be helpful. I do not want my girlfriend or my wife or my partner to be a carbon copy of me that has all of the same views. Like, that's not always going to be helpful or constructive. When I say racially conscious, I simply mean she's aware of how racial and ethnic differences may shape our lived experiences as people um, in important ways. Now, if I'm being completely honest with you, I know way more non-white women that are racially conscious than I do white women who are racially conscious. True story. 
Like I know way more non-white women, right? Hispanic or black or Asian or just even other ethnic groups, people of color. I know way more non-white racially conscious women than I do white women that are racially conscious. Now, to me, this is understandable, although it is a little bit strange. If you asked about sexism, many white women would give you story after story and name friends and family and others who've been affected, right? For whatever reason, though, it's really difficult for like white women to imagine exclusion or rejection or mistreatment and prejudice taking place in America on the basis of race or ethnicity. Like you can imagine it with gender, but you can't imagine it based on race or ethnicity. But to me, those are two sides of the same coin. And again, there's research on this as well. It's research in social psychology talking about monolithic theories of prejudice. Whole different conversation, really core cool research. But those are two sides of the same coin because inequality manifests in many different ways. Sexism, racism, colorism, ableism, classism, ageism, the list goes on. So you can imagine inequality manifesting on one identity dimension. You can imagine inequality manifesting on the basis of someone's gender. But you can't imagine or fathom, even for a second, the idea of it manifesting based on someone's, like, like do you really lack the imagination to do that? Like, I'm not even trying to be condescending or shady. Like, do you really lack the imagination to make that connection? Like, you can imagine sexism, but you can't imagine racism? I mean, certainly it's not a stretch to think that it, if, if inequality manifests based on various identity dimensions, it can manifest on the identity dimension of race just like it can manifest on the identity dimension of sex. I don't think it takes a lot of imagination to consider that. But in general, there's a reason why we see that phenomenon or pattern of thinking, not just for white women, but for white men as well. In general, when we're afforded the benefits of inequality, we don't always recognize it. That's, I want to be clear, that's true for me as a man with sexism, just like it's true for white women and racism, right? I have to fight to see sexism exist because as a man, I don't always recognize it the way a woman does, right? So I have to fight to see sexism just the, in the same way that white women have to fight to see racism. A lot of times we don't notice inequality until it starts to inconvenience our lives. When we benefit from inequality, we may not even notice it. And so barring an act of God, I don't really have interest in dating any woman that isn't racially conscious. However, since I found, and this is anecdotal, since I found this set of attitudes and beliefs to be most common among white women, and there is a lot of research to support that, not just white women, but white men too, white Americans 
are more likely to endorse colorblindness. They're more likely to uh, say that racism doesn't exist. It's a phenomenon of the past. Like white Americans compared to racial minorities differ a lot in how they perceive and even how they understand race relations. So that is an anecdote, but there's also research to support that idea. Since I found that this set of attitudes and beliefs is most common among white women, it means I don't see those romantic relationships as particularly likely for me, right? Like that's the way that works. But I want to be clear, that has everything to do with being racially conscious and nothing to do with being white. I wouldn't connect well with a black woman who isn't racially conscious either. I wouldn't want to date her, right? This is about being racially conscious. Being black won't make me more interested in someone and being not black won't make me less interested in someone. I can't say that for being racially conscious, though. It absolutely makes me less interested. I mean, we can still connect, right? I just don't want to date you, right? To me, an unwillingness or disinterest in being racially conscious is really unflattering. It comes off as a very... Uh, naive ignorance that can have really destructive consequences in interpersonal relationships and otherwise, like romantic relationships. So maybe, maybe I can, um, excuse me, maybe I can illustrate with an example, right? Maybe that'll help. So I'm Nigerian, and most of my family lives in Nigeria. But I was born in the United States. I was born in Harlem actually. Um, I grew up in a household where my dad was a doctor and my mom was a nurse. We had four different cars growing up and my parents bought each of us a car in high school. I had, yeah, three siblings I grew up with. So each of us got a car uh, shortly after kind of getting our license in high school. So there were lots of cars and vehicles and kind of our parents served us in that way. I went to a four-year university on, on an academic scholarship and my dad paid the remainder of my school fees so I could graduate debt-free. And he did that for me, he did that for my brother, he did that for my sister, and he did that for my other brother. So he did that for all four of his kids. Not one of us had a single cent of debt from undergrad, not even a penny. I graduated, and I subsequently worked a job where I was making close to six figures and I was only 24, right? And now, I'm currently enrolled in a PhD program. I graduated when I was 21, by the way, but you know, a couple of years went by, I got promotions, whatever. Um, and now, I'm currently enrolled in a PhD program, fully funded, at one of the most prestigious universities in the country, right? So think about what I shared for a bit. You know, parents, physician, my, my, my dad's a physician, my mom's a nurse, lots of resources and capital growing up. Went to college, four-year school, um, not a single drop of debt, graduated, great job, making very close to six figures, 20, you know, early 20s, PhD program, fully funded, no debt, right? Still no debt. Can you imagine what it would be like if I just assumed all of my family in Nigeria 
or everybody in the entire world just got through life with access to all the same resources and opportunities that I, I did. Like, wouldn't that idea be unflattering to you? Like, wouldn't that be off-putting and unattractive? Can you imagine being in a relationship with someone that was that naive about how the world works? Like, can you imagine that person being your boyfriend or that person being your girlfriend? Like, being with someone who's that naive about America, society, like the world. We're all basically the same. To me, it's an enormous turnoff. It doesn't even matter what your racial group is, right? That level of ignorance is an enormous turnoff. Not to mention being really harmful and really destructive. Again, don't even have time to get into all that. There's one other thing that I'll touch on because I, I know this is starting to run a little bit long. I want to be sensitive of that. Um, we know that America is segregated. America is segregated, and I've spoken about this on, you know, many, many occasions. So um, I had a series, what, I think this was summer 2018 on race and place. So you can look at part one, part two, and part three. Uh, really good series. I really liked it. Well, that was kind of biased. Anyway, I mean, I still think it was good. You should, you should listen to it. Um, I enjoyed it. I think you'll enjoy it too. Anyway, so I did the series on race and place. But we know that America is segregated. But this, the segregation in America also influences interracial dating in ways that most people generally don't give a lot of thought to, right? Because if America is segregated, it's going to influence who people end up dating too. Um, I've taken a ton of interest in residential segregation. So urban housing, the sociology of finance, um, and other topics in, in sociology that influence where people live and who's in their neighborhood. Um, one thing that sociologists that are versed in American history regularly mention is the extent of re residential segregation specifically for black Americans, right? Now, we all know that white neighborhoods are mostly white. That's why they're called white neighborhoods. Asian neighborhoods are mostly Asian, and Hispanic neighborhoods are mostly Hispanic. Again, America is segregated, so that's just kind of how things work. But black neighborhoods are filled to the brim with almost exclusively black people, right? In other words, black people represent 13% of the US population. That's you know, US census data. So we represent 13% of the US population. But in the handful of communities that do have black people, Almost all of those black people live in the exact same neighborhoods. And this is a phenomenon that's been referred to in sociology as hypersegregation, right? So it's not a groundbreaking idea that segregation exists in American society, but for black people, there is hypersegregation. And there's lots of reasons to kind of speak to that. And I'll talk about some of those shortly. Black neighborhoods are overwhelmingly just black. Now that means two things. Number one, if you're not black, if you avoid those neighborhoods, you'll never really live or interact with black people. And certainly not with mostly black people. 
right? That's what hypersegregation means. If all the black people are in the same neighborhoods, if you don't go to black neighborhoods, you'll never see black people. Maybe on television, but you're just not going to interact with black people. Now, if you're wondering, well, I guess I said two things, right? So that's number one. Number two is if you are black, if you never leave or get out of those neighborhoods, you will interact with almost exclusively other black people, right? So that's twofold. If all the black people are in the same neighborhoods in America, that means if you're not black and you don't go to those neighborhoods, you'll never see or interact with them. And it means if you are black and you never get out of those neighborhoods, you're just going to interact with black people. That's hyper-segregation, and that's what that means for black Americans. If you're wondering how this came to be, um, again, there's the, the series on race and place would be helpful for you, um, particularly part two. Part two is probably most helpful for kind of speaking to that idea. Uh, but I'll summarize, right? Um, it's not a coincidence that America is kind of in that place with hypersegregation for black Americans. America has um, decades of discriminatory lending that took place in the 20th century, so throughout the 1900s. Specific, uh, yeah, like starting maybe late 1920s and kind of progressing from there. So that period mostly was in the 1920s, um, 1930s to like the 1960s, 1970s. But even since then, it's still happening. It's just a little more covert. Um, but throughout the 20th century, there was all this discriminatory lending that was taking place and those things back then and even today, they largely influence the demographic composition of black neighborhoods. Because again, some of these banks are still doing the same things. It's just a little bit harder to demonstrate and kind of show. During the Jim Crow era, it made discrimination against black people way easier when all black people lived in the same part of the city, right? So if you don't like black people and you want to discriminate against them, but you treat black people, get them all in the same part of the city and then you can firebomb things and, you know, go lynch and, you know, black people and things of that sort. So it was a lot easier when there was hypersegregation to show and reflect the historical anti-black sentiment that was characteristic of American, um, you know, race relations for most of its history. Um, but as you would imagine, this has important implications for interracial dating. Everybody wants to connect well with the person they date. Black, white, straight, gay, men, women, whatever. We all want to connect well with our partner. But because of racism and discrimination, black people have been so isolated throughout American history, past and present, that a lot of Americans feel like they can't connect or relate to black people. And this has been supported by research, research in social psychology and research in sociology. Now I'll talk briefly about four different kinds of isolation to kind of illustrate the point that I'm making. And then we'll bring it in for a landing. Uh, we'll talk about psychological isolation, political isolation, structural isolation, and then geospatial isolation. Um, psychological isolation is exactly what it sounds like. In psychology, we use this term called psychological distance. And psychology, excuse me, psychological distance is another way of measuring how similar we feel to someone. So how similar do you feel to 
your pastor? How similar do you feel to your mom? How similar do you feel to your dad? That's how we measure psychological distance in psychology. Um, it represents the cognitive distance in our brain between ourselves and someone else. When psychologists ask Americans to rate similarities uh, to different groups in the US, findings show that compared to other groups, like you know, Jewish people or Hispanic people or Asian people or you know, gay people or straight people, whatever, most non-Black Americans feel a great deal of psychological distance with Black people. Now, part of that is understandable. Because of isolation, Black Americans have fairly distinct experiences in America. We live in the other America, the, the America where racism can get you shot and killed on a daily basis for the most uh, you know, benign of things. But anyway, we, 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 we live in the other America and there are unique ways of communicating and interacting and all this other kind of stuff. We have just different experiences. But if we're talking about interracial dating, this does have the potential to pose as a challenge, right? So that's psychological isolation. There's also political isolation. It's exactly what it sounds like. Political scientists note that forming alliances and coalitions is very important for American politics. You have to find groups that you have common ground with and work together to get things done. But researchers have also uh, keenly noted that black neighborhoods are so isolated that their political views are really different than other groups in America. Ordinarily, when people advocate for something uh, for a neighborhood or a town or city or a suburb, that thing tends to impact everyone in the community, right? The white people, the black people, the Asian people, the Hispanic people, the Native American people, the Pacific Islander people, like everybody in that community will be affected. But black neighborhoods are so isolated, things they want from the government usually only affect, you guessed it, black people. Because there aren't many people of other racial groups in those neighborhoods, right? Practically, this makes it very difficult uh, to find people of other racial groups that share political interest. Honestly, Lots of people just don't understand because they're not from those communities and have never been to those communities. Even a visit, right? Like, you don't have a reason to go over there, you're probably not gonna be over there. Again, political leanings are important for dating. If you feel like your partner has unusual political views, that usually isn't a green light. But the political leanings of a lot of Black Americans may be hard to understand for people who aren't Black. That has the potential to have uh, downstream uh, dating consequences. So that's political isolation. There's also structural isolation, right? Institutional racism is definitely a thing for racial minorities in the United States. But the way America has weaponized the government to oppress black people throughout American history is somewhat of a distinctive experience from many other racial minorities in the United States. This manifests with education, this manifests with healthcare, it manifests with finance and urban housing uh, and even suburban housing. Uh, it manifests with law enforcement and criminal justice, science, religion. 
Uh, the list goes on. Our experiences, Black Americans' experiences, Black people's experiences with all of these American institutions, um, it's a bit unique. And I don't have time to talk about all of those things, but trust me, like, like Black Americans in the U.S. have had very unique experiences with education, healthcare, finance, housing, law enforcement, criminal justice, science, religion, and a lot of other topics as well. And that's been... 190 years of the 244-year American history. So literally 80% of American history is characterized by institutions that have systematically oppressed and abused black people. If that hasn't been your experience, again, you may find that very, very hard to connect or relate to, right? So that's structural isolation. Like the way black Americans have interacted with the government has been very unique and distinct to our experience with the American government and American society at large. There's also geospatial isolation. Geospatial isolation is exactly what it sounds like. You can't fall in love with a person that you've never met. I mean, yes, you can. There's like Tinder and you know, Bumble and eHarmony, all this other stuff. But I think you get the point I'm making. You can't meet them if you're never in the neighborhood where they live and they're never in yours because America is segregated, right? And in the case of black Americans, it's hyper segregated. Um, so based on socio-historical context concerning race relations in America, there are lots of Americans that avoid black neighborhoods and lots of black Americans that avoid uh, non-black neighborhoods. It really is that simple. Like, I'm going to be over here with all the black people and you can be over there with, you know, everybody else. And again, I'm not saying that's right or good or beneficial, but as a black person, you can get shot and killed for being in the wrong place. And it happens. You can be scrutinized by the police. Like, it's very easy for people to give you a hard time just because they feel like you're not where you're supposed to be. So you have to keep that in mind. Again, that's geospatial isolation. I could go on, but honestly, I think I've made my point. There are complex psychological and sociological processes that influence interracial dating. Yes, at church too. So we'll need to be a lot more thoughtful about that, right? Because the cookie cutter interpretations generally don't work well for complex things. So, I mean, no, like interracial relationships aren't necessarily a good measure of diversity climate. Like you gotta be more thoughtful about the complexity of interracial relationships and how racism and race relations and stereotypes all kind of feed into this phenomenon, generally resulting in unequal access to um you know, the opportunity to date interracially. And again, like, it is what it is at this point. I mean, race relations, including interracial dating, it's, it's pretty layered and, a, and it's a complex phenomenon. So, you know, my encouragement with this is to be thoughtful about that. And not just the, the topic of interracial dating, but honestly, just the topic of race relations in general. Like, guys, we got to be way more thoughtful about this. We really, really do. Um, so hey man, all this was in love. Again, I you know I probably shared some things that some people may not find flattering, but it's cool. Um, when with your thoughts, ideas, perspectives, um, all of that is kind of helpful for uh, moving this conversation forward. So feel free to reach out. 
Love to hear from you guys and uh, I'll catch you guys soon. Thank you.